Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Welcome to Career Sessions Career Lessons. I'm J.R. Lowry. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Debbie Lovich to the show. Debbie is a senior partner with the Boston Consulting Group, where she spent the vast majority of her career in a variety of roles spanning consulting work with clients, running BCG's Boston office, leading several work and leadership-focused initiatives for BCG that we'll cover in our session today. She leads the firm's people strategy and is currently focused on the future of work. She is actively speaking and writing on that topic with clients and in the media. She has a TED Talk to her credit and writes biweekly for Forbes. Debbie did her undergraduate work in economics at Barnard and also has an MBA from Harvard Business School. She and her family live in the Boston area. Debbie, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Been looking forward to having this conversation because I know you've been doing so much on the future of work lately, and it's such a hot topic for everybody as we're kind of figuring our way back into something of a post-pandemic world, realizing that we're not fully through it yet. So normally I would focus on career and learnings. I definitely want to do that today, but I also want to spend time talking about the work you've done on the future of work since it is an active conversation. But let's let's talk about you first. So where did you grow up and what was your first job as a kid? Oh, goodness. So I grew up in Englewood, New Jersey, which is just outside of New York City over the George Washington Bridge. So close that when you ask people from Englewood where they're from, they usually say New York, but I'm (laughs) proudly from New Jersey. And my first job had to be babysitting, either babysitting or snow shoveling. We got a lot of snow, a lot of people. We do their driveways for money and cookies. Yeah. How many kids in your family? Three. I'm a middle child. Were you all out doing that snow shoveling together? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Teamwork. Yeah. Good job. I don't think I did a whole lot of snow shoveling for money. I just did snow shoveling on our own driveway. Well, that was my parents' complaint is we didn't do our own house because we prefer to make money. So we'd go do folks down the block. Yeah, you were smarter about it than I was. So how did you decide to go to Barnard and and why economics? Yeah, so I was, again, in New Jersey, high school in the city, and fell in love with Barnard when I visited it. It was just like, oh, this is like an oasis in New York City. Such a great campus, focused on women, but part of Columbia University. I was like, this is like nirvana. So I fell in love with it because of the environment. But I always knew I wanted to be a business person. And Barnard's is liberal arts college as you could get, right? Mm. And so that's how I decided to study economics. I'm like, that's as close as I could get to business. So I studied economics. If they had business, I would have done that. Yeah. Remind me, did you start working in BCG right after college or did you work someplace else before you went to business school? I worked at Bain and then a Bain spinoff. So I was in consulting and then went to business school thinking I was wanted to get out of consulting and get a real job. So I did a internship for a real company that summer. I actually want to stay a consultant. What did you do in that summer job? I worked at Biogen, 
that now it's a big pharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical company. Back then they were just a research house and anything they discovered, they licensed out to others to sell. Right. And they do drugs in the pipeline that they're like, why do we have to license it out? Why don't we become a commercial company? So my project for the summer was helping them figure out how to launch a sales force, how to sell to hospitals and insurance mm-hmm. companies, and basically coming up with a plan to launch their drugs themselves, which was super fun. Got it. Yeah. I know you picked up healthcare in your work at BCG too. Did you know you wanted to go to business school or at what point did you know that you wanted to go to business school? It was always because I knew I wanted to be in business, right? And yeah. I studied economics to get as close as possible. So I always thought I need to do like a real business degree at some point. And then when I got into consulting, it was just what people did. You work for two or three years and then you go to business school. So it was almost at that point, it was like a track that I got on, but it wasn't just because it was a track. I knew I wanted more business experience because it turns out studying economics is not the same as business. No, it's not the same as business, but it certainly gives you a grounding in certain aspects of how business works, right? Yeah. And just the quantitative skills. But economics, you know, assumes people are rational and in the real world and real business, right? Yeah. People aren't as rational. Yeah. I remember I took macro and micro in college and the microeconomics class was super hard. It just, it was, I remember the professor saying to me, oh, you got a 64 on the first test. That's a really good score. Wow. Wow. It was a (laughs) tough class. It was a tough class. Grade as well on my first, actually macro exam. Micro was crazy and a lot of calculus in it. But I got like, I think like a C on my first macro exam. And I did the classic pull an all nighter, drink caffeine, even though I never drank coffee before Mm. and just a wreck for that exam, but ended up pulling it out. Yeah. I think I took that micro class pass fail, which was a good move in the scheme of things. It was literally like my last semester. So at that point I was just sort of taking it as an extra class to get a grounding. Yeah, that was smart. Yeah. So you went to BCG and you did focus mainly on life science work. Was there any particular factor that drew you to it? Was it the work at Biogen or was it something else or was it just happenstance? No, it definitely was purposeful. And in fact, when I was looking to go back to consulting after Biogen for the summer, I knew I wanted to do healthcare. And so that was the lens I was using. And it was because I spent three years in consulting before graduate school and I was like the real generalist. I did transportation, food, clothing, industrial goods. And I never felt very passionate Mm -hmm. about the industry that I was working in. And I was just like, step back and say, well, where do I feel passion? I was like, healthcare, like healthcare, like fixes sick people. Like it's Mm -hmm. a good thing. I mean, if you've ever had an infection and taken an antibiotic, like overnight, you're better, right? right? In hours, you're better. And so I felt like, doing healthcare was a way to feel a little bit more purpose in what I was doing, like not to be driven solely by profit, right? But to be driven by how can I help bring to market cures for things we don't have cures for today. And so that's why I ended up going into Biogen for the summer. And then when I realized, gosh, I have a lot more impact as a consultant and then as I would as an employee that I said, I want to go back to consulting so I could have more impact. But I want to do it in that industry. I want to do it in the life sciences and healthcare industry. Yeah. Did you work on any projects that were particularly memorable? In healthcare? Yeah. Oh my God, so many. So one of them was working as a company doesn't even exist anymore. You usually don't talk about your clients, but this was back in 1994. I think I could talk about my clients. 
I was working with brand new, I think it was my first project with Burroughs Welcome, the next gen HIV offering. So AZT was the only thing out there in 94 and was not a cure for AIDS. And they had all these great therapies coming down the pipe. And so what they wanted to do is think about how do they do more than just sell the therapy, but how can they really help HIV practitioners? And so I went out and just basically lived in HIV high volume practices Hmm. in cities where there's a lot of AIDS, right? So LA, New York, Chicago, and really got to understand like the life, the economics, the workflow of a large scale HIV practice. And what is it that our client could do to help them manage the disease more broadly than just sell the drug? So that was super, super fun. So that's a client project. And then the more interesting thing came probably later on in my career when I was approached by a professor by HBS to say, hey, can I help work on how to make work-life balance better at BCG? I study work-life balance. And at that point, JR, I was like, so not a role model of work-life balance. We had four little kids, house was a mess. The kids' clothes were always too small on them because they were growing too fast, didn't have time to go shopping, husband work. And I'm like, listen, if there was a way to fix work-life balance, I'm sure I would have found it, but go ahead, come on in. I wouldn't mind some free advice and play that out over years. We came up with an approach to fundamentally change how we work at BCG to make us life better, but still deliver even higher impact work with clients and learning for our people. So that's a client project where my client was my own firm. And you know how they say, Doctors make most terrible patients because they're always yeah. questioning like what the doctor does. Right. Well, firms make terrible clients because they're always like questioning what you're doing. Don't try that self-discovery, change management crap on me kind of stuff. So it was super challenging, but super fun. Yeah. And so I was going to ask you how you got interested in the concept of work itself. So it sounds like it came out of that. And it sounds like it came from this HBS professor, Leslie Perlow, yeah. approaching you or approaching BCG about that. Well, approaching me, actually, as a way into BCG, she was a friend of a friend, a woman, Jill Altschuller, who I went to business school with and also worked at BCG with me. And Jill had since left BCG, but she basically gave, when Leslie was telling her, oh, she wants to research BCG, she gave her my name. And so she called me and I got her connected with a couple other people at BCG. And yeah, I was hardcore doing life sciences, pharma, sales and marketing effectiveness, post-merger integration, medical strategies. Like I was doing my dream. I wanted to change the face of healthcare and help bring more drugs to market. And so this was just really random, friend of a friend, yet it became a passion. I became the lead of it at BCG and we got great insight. And it's one thing to come up with the academic insight. How do you theoretically make work-life balance happen? It's a much bigger thing to then try and change the way of working and culture in yeah. an interim. Like, Because even if you have the data and the proof, people are like, yeah, that works for you, but not for me. Or don't try and get me to change how I do my work or mm. not invented here, right? So that was super, super fun. And I realized I used to think the people stuff was all soft and fluffy and I'm hardcore strategy and operations. And I realized in doing that effort at BCG that the people stuff is the hardest stuff. Yeah. Changing how people work and leaders lead. That's really hard. How did you in consulting firms like a BCG, 
have a reputation for really working everybody hard, right? Not just the junior people, but everybody. And what did you actually do to help improve work-life balance in the firm while also, as you were saying a second ago, improving the impact that you were having on your clients? Like what were some of the specific things that you rolled out that actually took hold? Yeah, I think the most interesting, I mean, there's so much there. We could spend the whole podcast talking about it, which is fine if you like. But I mean, the most interesting thing that the team from HPS found was this notion that people came to BCG expecting to work hard, wanting to work hard, work hard, play hard kind of people, want to get ahead, voracious learners. And so they expected it and they didn't mind it. But what they did mind was this lack of control and predictability and inability to make a plan, Yeah, like to say to friends, well, I don't know if I could commit to doing something midweek and even on the weekends, because I don't know what might come up at work. And so it wasn't the intensity that bothered people. They signed up for it. They're well-paid, they're learning, they're getting ahead. It was the lack of predictability, which what's behind that? No sense of control, right? That we need to have. And so the insight was, well, let's give people just a little bit of predictability, like one night off that they turn off. Yeah. And let's see what happens. And okay, now everyone who's listening is probably rolling their eyes and saying, oh, you get to go to consulting and maybe you get one night off. No, that wasn't the point. The point was to say, can you predictably turn off and have a set time and say, I'm going to turn off and learn the world won't fall apart, right? We just implemented this and we were working with academics. So there's a lot of metrics, data, surveys, and we just surveyed people every week. And we happened to have a survey we were doing in the office anyhow to measure how people were feeling about their projects. How are you feeling? Are you learning? Are you delivering value? Is the work high impact? Is this sustainable? How's the work-life balance, right? So we just used that same survey and it turned out on teams where people turned off for a night, just randomly shut down, not only did their work-life balance get better, right? You would expect, okay, they have a night to do whatever they want that they can make plans for, right? But all the other scores went up too. Hmm. Learning, delivering value, working efficiently, working effectively. And what we realized was if it wasn't just the predictability that we were delivering, of course, predictability is a good thing to deliver, but it was getting people every week to talk as a team to say, is everyone going to get their time off this week? If not, why not? And that conversation raised all the issues around the work every week, right? Mm -hmm. Not with the end of the project and doing an end of project feedback or something. Every week saying, are you going to get your predictable time off this week? If not, why not? And in the why not were issues we needed to know about. Bad data, low performer, belligerent client. So rather than have the team spin on it, they brought the problems up or rather than have individuals with those accountability spin on it, it brought the problems up for the whole team to tackle together, right? So that was one thing. And then the other thing it did is the why not could be I have too much work to do. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the work. Okay, let's cut the work. You don't have to do it all. Like, I think that's one of the hardest things, especially people early on in their careers have is prioritizing, saying no to something a senior person asks you to do. So again, that process just help us prioritize the work, eliminate things, find different approaches. And so if you think about that, if you're solving problems earlier, you're prioritizing the work, you're teaming more on issues rather than feeling you have to 
solve it yourself, we began to understand, well, that's why learning went up and productivity went up and client impact went up as well. So I think the key learning was solving for work-life balance on its own is actually not necessary. It's actually making the work better for everyone and then taking that improved efficiency and giving that back to people as work-life balance. And then also just teaching people to work smart, building a muscle to say, you know what, I can turn off. I know the world won't fall apart as opposed to I always have to keep going. There's always more to do because there's always more. There's always more to do, especially in consulting projects. Yeah, absolutely. Given that your time crunch, was this before, during, or after the old dot-com era war for talent period that certainly hit the consulting firms hard? Leaving. Yeah. It was way after actually. Okay. It was after. I mean, the dot-com stuff was what? Early 2000, late nineties. Yeah. This was more 2007, 2008. So we had less of a war for talent going on there, but we still had some of our best people leaving. Like consulting was a place where people feel like you come, you spend a couple of years, you learn a lot, and then you go get a real job because no one could put up with the travel or work-life balance or the lack of control. And a couple of years in, we've invested a ton in you. And BCG, fortunately, is... I think like the fastest growing consulting firm, if you look back over the past 10 years yeah, or 20 years. And so we were growing so fast. We needed people to stay, especially our best people. And so it wasn't, we were bleeding talent, but we always had a retention issue. I think as every firm does that works. Yeah. Well, to some degree, I mean, the consulting models are built on a certain level of attrition, right? As part of the upper out framework that they use. But when it gets too high, obviously, it makes it really hard to staff projects and bring the right expertise to bear. Yeah. But you want the upper out to be skill-based, not burnout-based. True. And when you're growing fast, you actually don't want so much upper out as much. I mean, you want upper out because you want people to perform. You want people to grow. Like It's not that want you at the next level. Like We want people who have the ability to grow to the next level because the world is getting more complicated. So we definitely want upper out but you need less out if you're growing really fast. Yes, you do. You do. You led the Boston office for a period of time. How did you find that experience relative to doing consulting projects for your clients? Yeah, I loved it. What happened was, is again, four little kids, husband works full time, not making it work at home. Like my husband's like, you have to quit your job. You have to quit your job. And at a very young age or tenure, I was made partner. And then at a young tenure, I was asked to join our executive committee, which is like the top 10 people who run the firm. And here I am, this bright-eyed junior, I think first or second woman on BCG's executive committee ever, right? Now, I don't know, 40% women or 50% women. But back in, gosh, what was that? Like 2005? I think I was the first, maybe the second, if Sandy Moose was on it years before. And I think she was, so I was the second, but so I was like to my husband, how could I pass up? I've just asked to go, well, being on the executive committee involves like another six weeks of travel a year. Right. And globally. And so my husband said to me, he was a doctor in training. He goes, they asked me to be chief resident. It's big honor. I said, no, because I have four little kids and a wife who works. You could say no to these things. Right. So anyhow, I needed a way to break from the treadmill. And so I always thought like when we were in business school, like you remember we did like the Myers-Briggs test and it says like, my answer was, oh, you should be an army general, right? I like being in control and managing everything and being at the center. 
And so I always thought when I'm done with consulting, I actually want to take the role leading the office, the internal role, managing all the staff and all the programs and the PL and everything, because that's I like to be in charge. And I remember Mark, my husband, was at a point where he's like, you got to quit. And I'm like, I'm not ready to. I just joined the executive committee. I got to stay on at least two years. Like that would be really mm. bad form if I left the executive committee after getting this honor. And I remember the woman in the role I wanted, people usually stay in that role for like 10 years because it's such a great role. Yeah. And she came to me and she said, I'm quitting. And I'm like, oh my God, please, please just stay one more year. That's perfect. I need to ratchet down, but I need one more year. And she's like, I'm not delaying my quitting for you. Like, Mm -hmm. sorry. And so I watched it go and I was kicking myself. And so another woman came and took the role and we became good friends. And one day, a year in, she comes to my office. She goes, I can't take it. I'm quitting. I go, great. I'll take your job. So that's how I ended up in the head of the office role. And I loved it because it was so operational. As a consultant, you're always giving advice, right? But you don't own the P&L. You don't own the attraction and retention of employees. You're giving advice. And here, I owned it. I yeah. owned it. And yeah. it's an operator and it's yeah. different. And it was awesome. It was really, really awesome and really, really fun to do. But it was definitely very different and I had to build so many new muscles, so yeah. many, new, right? You're managing teams of consulting staff. And these people need no management, right? They're just type A driven, insecure overachievers. Go, 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 go. When you're managing the entire office, you have people whose value equations are different and what they're solving for is different. And they don't get jazzed about working all the time and they don't get paid for that either. Yeah. So what is it that glues them to the company? How do you engage? How do you motivate? It was super fun. But I had a great team. Like, to be honest, JR, I probably learned more than I gave in that role. Yeah. Because I had such a great head of HR and head of IT and head of operations and head of career management. Like, I had a great team. And so, what I was able to do because I had such a great team is let them run, help when needed, learn. But then I said, okay, I have all this time and energy. Why don't I take on BCG as a client? and find things to change at BCG to make BCG better. So one was this program with the professor at HBS, which we were doing before, but we hadn't scaled it yet. So most of the scaling I actually did when I was in that role. And I just found other things about how we work in our region. Then I was like, you know what, this is broken. Can I fix it, right? Who's going to say no? So it was super fun. So yes, I was in an operator role, probably with half my time, but half my time, I just say BCG became my client. Yeah. You did leave at a point in time, right? And then came back. What sort of precipitated the decision to go out? Albeit you remained, I think, in an advisory role. But what led the decision to go out and what led the decision to come back in? Yeah. So I was in what we call the OC, right? The office lead role. Mm-hmm. Probably It was probably about five years. And like, I don't know, every four or five years, you start to get bored yeah. and think about what's next. And at the same time, my kids were not ready for me to go back on the road all the time. And back then, the consulting really meant on the road mm-hmm. all the time. Now it doesn't for like one, because of we got much many more local clients. So there are like more than half our office is local and local clients. But also with COVID, you don't have to right. travel work, right. right? Necessarily. And so I was starting to get bored. And then Leslie, the professor I was working with, had written a book about our work together. And I helped her write the book. I was the person responsible at BCG 
to edit it to make sure we were comfortable. So once you write a book, what the professors do is you start a company. And she's like, okay, it's time to start the company to bring this to other firms. And so I need you to come and be my CEO and help her start it. And somewhere in my mind, I always wanted to try a startup. Yep. And I was starting to get a little bored. And I would never really would have thought of it if she didn't ask me. Yeah. But I was like, why not? Life's short. Go try it. So yeah. I left her. It was just two years. Yeah. I realized I'm a better consultant than entrepreneur. And I also really, really missed the community of people at BCG. You don't realize how special your colleagues are, especially because I've been there 18 years at that point. Yeah. You don't realize how special they are until you leave, right? And I was in a high-performance environment like Harvard Business School. That's where I was hanging out as we were working. But even it's different. Like academia, I mean, you know, it's very competitive. And yeah. like at BCG, everyone, and maybe it's because we grow so fast. We're all in it together. We're all teaming. It's one plus one is seven. And so I just missed the peaceful. I missed the culture. And so I was like, okay. And the other thing that happened is both my girls left the house. So yeah. one daughter college over those two years and one decided to go to boarding school. So I had my two little boys at home, but I was like, ah, boys are easy. And so I came back. As he said, I always was an advisor to BCG because I wasn't planning to leave. There was no infrastructure built to support the PTO program, yeah. that the work-life balance program that I had built. Right. And so I helped support it. But really importantly, it actually was good for BCG that I left because I was like the founder owner. And then I left and I had to say, okay, now let's professionalize it. Yeah. Let's own this. Let's get a team in place. And so I was able to consult and help build that infrastructure from the outside and then came back to client work. What was it during that time you were away about being an entrepreneur that wasn't a good fit for you? What wasn't a good fit for me? Yeah. When um, you say you were a better consultant than you were an entrepreneur, did you just love consulting more? Or was there something about being an entrepreneur that just, just didn't yeah. really end up being right for you? What I missed was the vast access to smart people and resources that you have in a large organization that you don't have when you're an entrepreneur and you're a team of three or really two and a quarter, right? So we had a quarter of the professor's time. We had one employee. If you need other people's help and just thought partnership, right? Just thought partnership. You have to go find it and convince someone or have an arrangement. When you're BCG, you just walk down the hall. You go to the bathroom. You find smart people with ideas who want to help you. That pool of talent on tap, wanting to help and see you succeed, like is just hard to recreate as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And so what I realized was I wanted to be an entrepreneur within BCG. So the same way I built this program, like that program didn't exist. And it's now a global part of like why BCG has won the best place to work in the top mm-hmm. like five for eight years and top 10 for a couple of years, we dropped out of the top five because they couldn't keep giving us number one and two and three. And so I realized I liked being an entrepreneur with the resources of a firm and the ability to have impact. So when I came back to the consulting side, it was to build new offerings, yeah. to conceive and build new offerings. It wasn't to just do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. I came back to invent in the leadership and culture and people space, a space I got to know doing this program. And then the way I think about it is I've got the best of both worlds. I'm an entrepreneur, but I got talent and resource on tap. You kind of can't beat that. Yeah. I know you got involved in the what BC called the leadership and talent 
Enablement Center. Were you involved in the founding of that or was BCG in that space before you got involved? Yeah, the guy who founded that was in Asia and was in the process of standing up up in Asia when I came in. And the head of the people in organization practice, Grant Freeland, who's a good friend of mine. And in fact, he was my partner in developing the PTO program with Leslie. Like the way we describe it is I'm the mother and he's the grandfather. He's older than me. But he brought me in to say, Debbie, can you build our leadership offering out? And I'm like, well, what is our leadership offering? What do we have? And what are we trying to build? He goes, well, that's exactly what I need you to figure out. I mean, the first thing I did was just the lay of the land of who's doing what. And there was this amazing partner, Vikram Bala, in India, who was building out this leadership and talent enablement center there and doing fantastic work with clients. And so what we did is we took him, someone in Europe and myself, and together we brought that global and we built out our product offering around leadership and talent enablement. So I would say it was conceived locally. Yeah. And we grew it and birthed it globally. Yeah. And scaled it. Yeah. Do you feel like BCG had a unique spin on that space? I mean, it, it's something that the search firms have all gotten into this. And I'm, it's an obvious extension to what they do and what a consulting firm does. But what was BCG's unique spin on helping these executive level leaders whose companies were paying BCG a decent amount of money just to help make them better leaders? Yeah. I, I wrote about this early, early on in the role back before I wrote a lot. If you look at like what gets spent on building leadership capabilities out there, it's in like the hundred billion dollars. I mean, it's crazy, yeah, crazy amounts of money. If you add up all the leadership and development programs for leaders across the globe, and it is, in my mind, like 90% wasted. And I used to do this little exercise, JR, with leaders where I would say, I want you to all just think of something you're really, really good at that you weren't naturally good at be anything at work at home. Yeah. And then think about why did you decide to get good at it? How'd you get good at it? And how do you stay good at it? And then I just cold call a couple. Yeah. And you know, people will say things like, I had to learn to play golf because people in my industry, that's where the networking happens or in sales, how you get customers. And I was really bad at it. So I got a coach and he practiced with me like every weekend. And finally I'm decent enough to play a game. And they would videotape me and show me what I'm doing wrong and learn the feel of it. Okay, so how do you stay good at it? I play all the time. I play all the time. Okay, so you didn't watch a video from your couch and you didn't go to like golf camp for a week and then do nothing else. No, of course not, right? But that's what training is. Yeah. E-learning modules that you can shop while you check them off go to an offsite. And those are very good for like introducing you to a concept. Offsites are really good to expand your mind, get you to reflect, network, get to meet other people. Absolutely. But does it get you good at something? No. And the problem is if I said, I'm going to get good at golf by playing golf every day at lunch, it'll never happen because a meeting will land. I'll never get away. You actually have to fit it into your routines and rhythms. Like the best way, like if I want to get in shape, I'm not going to go to the gym every day. I'm going to walk to work and take the stairs and do walking meetings, right? And so I think that's the spin we bring to it is you have to find the natural but stretch opportunities during your day to practice again and again and again and get feedback. So there's this concept in behavioral science 
um, I think it was Anders Ericsson came out in a book called Peak or something about deliberate practice. Yeah. You know, like you need 10,000 hours to get good at something. Right. No, you need 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Deliberate practice means you have a like mental model for what you're going to try. You try it and then you reflect what worked and what didn't and then reconceive your mental model of what you're going to try next. If you just keep playing the piano randomly, you're not going to learn. And so you need to get the deliberate practice into your day-to-day routines. Yeah. And so we as BCG know a couple of things that people don't know. One is we actually know the skills you need because we've developed the strategy and know uniquely what are the pieces you need to close the gap, not a theoretical textbook thing that every leader has to be good at. No, we know for your business, for your starting point, for your strategy, because we're so deep. Second, we know how to get the behavioral science to work, where to hang it into your day. It becomes habit and you do the deliberate practice, where to tweak the rhythms and routines to get that to hang in. And then third, how to get the coaching in place from people who know what good look like, not just quote unquote, what good leaders have from research, but what looks like in your context. And so I know the executive search firms do great business in this area, but like how many of their coaches were C-suite executives in their life, right? How many? So our coaches that we deploy is we have probably about 50 coaches, all are former quasi-retired C-suite executives who have become BCG senior advisors, not to coach, but because of the content knowledge they have. And then we train them to become coaches. So they can go toe-to-toe with a client on helping advise on an issue or helping to coach to self-discover, but they actually really understand the context in a much more advanced way than even I as a consultant know because I wasn't the executive, Right. right? Like we have this woman, Vicky Ascara, who is head of operations at Delta Airlines, who turned them around during bankruptcy. Mm. He was CEO of like Feed America, a large nonprofit, right? And so she's now a BCG coach, Mm. right? She could tap into such a wealth of a career of experience and do the coaching thing because she's a wonderful coach too. So I don't know, long answer, but hopefully that- No, I think it's, and there's a few key points, right? One is just the point of experiential learning, right? It's the most powerful way you learn. And building in that deliberate practice, what's funny is people will go out and do that for fitness, they'll go out and do it for a hobby like golf in your example. And then they kind of approach what they do at work a bit more haphazardly, right? From a leadership perspective, how they develop their skills as a leader. And it's kind of a paradox when you think about it. Yeah. And some of even our consulting competitors, they have leadership institutes, really they're networking boondoggles with really exciting yeah. speakers, right? And that has a value. It does. Right? Meet good people, a network's important, and exciting speakers open your mind, Mm. but does not build the muscle you need to turn around your business. I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about future of work. And you've been focusing a lot on this, as I mentioned in in the beginning. Where do you think we're heading? Oh my God, it's such a good question. Well, everyone can watch my TED Talk. What you'll see is I'm super passionate about this topic. I'm sorry we only have a few minutes because I could spend a whole hour on this alone. Like, the way we work is completely broken. It's completely broken. And I talk about in the talk how we had to work one way in factories. You have to go a fixed time and place and Frederick Taylor, narrow job descriptions for repetition, perfection. 
why did we translate that to quote unquote knowledge work? And why do we translate that to everything we do? Why do you need to be in person to collaborate? Look, you and I, we're doing a video together. And so no one has ever stepped back to say, what should work be? Not like a micro change from where we are now. Well, let's do a little bit more by video or let's have some people let them work flexibly or let's work on this document asynchronously instead of trying to book a meeting between crazy calendars or let's work in agile ways. Like that's all tiny, tiny steps. And all of a sudden with the tragedy of COVID, we have a clean sheet of paper. Yeah. And we actually, and I use this analogy, not in my talk, but my kids are Harry Potter, like freaks, fans, I won't say freaks, fans. And you know, like the sorting hat, like you go in there and it tells you, okay, you're a Hufflepuff or a Gryffindor, right. you're in right. the UK now, right? Well, no one has taken the sorting hat to work and say, okay, this requires a live meeting. This could be asynchronous. This you could do remote on a Miro board. This what requires quiet time in whatever environment you work your best in. Like everything is done with a recurring meeting. Yeah. Like this is our chance to be smart, intentional, design thinking about given the task at hand, given the people's needs in life. And by the way, people are all different. How do we construct a work that is more humane and more productive? Right. And yeah. so why I get so passionate about it, like, like the muscle memory is really strong and it will pull the most senior leaders back to the way they used to work if we don't create a pause, yeah, think about it and build it. And so I'll tell you just one story because I've been writing so much about it and preaching so much about it. I get like newspapers or want to interview me for some article. The Boston Globe reached out and a woman was writing an article on what has it been like for new hires to onboard during COVID. So of course I talked to her by video and I'm saying, listen, the worst thing you could do is take your old onboarding programs and just do them remotely. It won't work. You have to redesign. And so like, I have a guy on the BCG team who made just videos of himself. Hey, this is my journey at BCG. Oh, and my kid just bombed it. Okay. Meet my kid. Right. And he sent it to people as mm. onboard so much better than a coffee chat and very stiff one. Right. Yeah. And so I have to reinvent it. And she goes, yeah, I've been talking to just a couple of new hires. I go, well, I have a new hire right downstairs. You want to talk to her? Because my daughter graduated college, moved back home, and was working in her first job downstairs for me in her bedroom. So I text her, you free? You want to come up and talk to the Boston Globe? Of course, she runs upstairs. <laughs> she says them something super interesting. She said to the reporter, what you adults don't realize is I spent a third of my college career remote. Yeah. So I know how to socialize remote. I know how to have fun remote. I know how to build connection. I know how to scroll through all the pictures during a lecture and introduce myself to someone or start a game of Zoom bingo. I don't even know what that is. And she goes, my mom has, I don't know, 30 years of working one way. And so my executive team at her new company, which she quit, by the way, and is now on her second job after yeah. just six months. My executive team, they should be asking me for advice on what to work because I'm a Zoom native, yeah. right? And so, JR, it's just this point to recognize we have so much muscle memory that's comfortable that's pulling us back. But yeah. if we could reverse mentor with our new talent, who not only do we have a clean sheet of paper, but we have Zoom native, digital native, collaborate asynchronously and remotely native talent that can help us learn and 
we've got to lean into it or ignore it. Your peril. Good luck getting your talent. Yeah. My message internally at work has been like move past how many days a week you're supposed to be in the office, like take ownership for what you do with that time. Right. And we're actually in the middle of doing this survey and detailed list of topics of activities that people do when they're day-to-day work. How effective are you doing these things at home? How effective are you doing these things in the office? How strong is your preference for one or the other? And I'm dying to see the data because I think it's going to end up showing that people generally at this point, pretty comfortable being able to get most things done at home. And so But just the silliness of having people in the office sitting on Zoom calls all day. We've got to figure out, I do believe, like I personally draw a certain amount of energy from being in the office when there's a lot of people there, there's a buzz to it. It's got that kind of vibe, but there are things that that you're just, or you're better off doing at home because it's quiet and you don't get interrupted as much. And each one of us, we're all different and we've got to figure out how to make that work. Yeah. And there's so much in what you said again, and I know we're we're almost at time, but People are so different. Like what we're seeing at BCG is our young talents dying to be in the office because they're in small apartments. Yeah. Our mid-level talent all have little kids and there's no way they could give up the savings of time and productivity commuting. And then you have people like me, like almost an empty nester. I'm happy to go in, but to sit on my Zoom all day. And so what we need to do is, again, I need to schedule like blocks of time to walk the hallways, pop into offices, say hi because I'm a senior old fart at BCG now, have an ask me any me session with anyone who wants to come, right? And again, it's the sorting hat. I've got to rethink, because this back-to-back Zoom stuff's crazy, because we haven't rethought it. I'm doing an experiment right now with a company. We're about to write out about it. I'll send it to you when it's done, about helping people learn to do work asynchronously. What do you think? Really need a meeting for that? Yeah. So all new muscle. Anyhow, super exciting time. What a time to live and consult. Yeah. It's unsettling in a way, but at the same time, I think we're going to look back on this five, 10, 20 years from now and say, that was like a pivotal moment in the history of work, right? And and how we all spent our daytime as professionals doing whatever we do. So yeah, I know we're running out of time. So we'll have to pick this up again in a few months when it's a little bit further into the return to office that's now going on in the US. We've been back a little bit more over here in London than I think the US has, but Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the next few months unfold. So we can do this again, Debbie. I would love it. All right. Well, give me when you get your survey data. And thanks for having me. I will. Thanks for doing this and have a good rest of the day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.